Christian discipleship. We're going to talk this morning about something very foundational, very foundational. And it's a big enough foundation and a solid foundation for everything else. It's a solid enough and big enough foundation for everything that follows. And we're going to start with Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north and east of the Sea of Galilee, so it's way up on the northern fringe, and actually just beyond the northern fringe of Israel. And it was, as you can tell by the name, Caesarea Philippi, it was a Gentile city, a Roman city, if you will, built uh, to uh, house Roman soldiers, nobility. It was kind of a Roman enclave in the Middle East. Had all kinds of uh, temples to other gods, including the Syrian god Baal, with whom the Israelites had chronic trouble. And then a, a temple also to Caesar, who was regarded as divine. So Jesus and his disciples were in that region. And he asked his disciples this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they knew that he was asking about himself, so the question really was Jesus asking them, what are people saying about me? When I was a student at the University of California at Davis and and part of a a Christian uh, campus group called the Navigators, that was one of the things that we did, is we would poll students in order to have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. We would just ask them that simple question, who is Jesus to you? And, and we got all kinds of answers. I mean, here Jesus' disciples said things like, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah the prophet, some Jeremiah or one of the other prophets back to life. You're a prophetic type figure. Well, what we would hear from students is that Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a wise man. Jesus was a miracle worker. Occasionally we get a Christian who would answer the question, uh, you know, that he is my savior or the savior. But most of the time, uh, especially now in our society, as our society has become more secular, uh, you get answers like that. Jesus was a wise man, a good man, a teacher, a uh, prophet, so on and so forth. Who do people say that I am? Then Jesus turned the question more personal, looking, probably looking. I like to fantasize or imagine Jesus' body language <laughs> in different situations. And in this case, his body language, in my opinion, was looking each of the disciples in the face eyeball to eyeball. And when he got to Peter, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now he asks each of you, who do you say that I am? This is not 2,000 years ago, this is 2023, September 10th. Here in this time and in this place, what say you? So let's practice that. (laughs) And let's not practice, let's just say it from the heart. Repeat after me. You are are. 
the Christ, the Son of the living God. So whenever anybody asks you, who's Jesus to you? You've got the answer one more time all the way through. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, C.S. Lewis says, you know, for people to contemplate that Jesus was a teacher, a prophet, a good man, or so forth, you have to ignore certain things. I mean, you'd have to ignore what Jesus says about himself, and you'd have to ignore what his disciples said about him. But let's just entertain that for a moment. For Jesus to imagine that he was the Christ, the Messiah, long promised and predicted, Savior of the world, he'd either have to be one of three things. The first one is he'd have to be a bull-faced liar. <laughs> Just a pathological liar. Because apparently he believes what he, he thinks about himself. And a, and a pathological liar would be somebody who believes his own lies. Uh, who's come to the place where they have no conscience about it at all. They just lie and look at you squarely in the face and their blood pressure doesn't go up and they'd fool any lie detector. A pathological liar. Or the second option is he'd need to be insane. Certifiable nutcase. You know, like somebody in a mental institution that says, you know, I'm Napoleon. You know, that's kind of an old joke. Everybody knows that when you got your hand in like that, you're, it's Napoleon. So Jesus would have to be a pathological liar, certifiable nutcase, or what? Telling the truth. Telling the truth. You don't have another option. You don't have the luxury of, oops, he made a mistake. <laughs> oops, he's really a good teacher. Well, a good teacher doesn't lie. Somebody that's good doesn't lie. And if he's just a wise man, then how do you account for what he says about himself and allows other people to say about him? We don't have a third rail here. It's just <laughs> or a, another option, excuse me. There's just three. Lie, crazy, um, telling the truth. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus, let's go back to the text. Then, okay, take the next scripture, yeah. One more and one more. Thank you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, I want you to notice this, just a little thing in the text there. It said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Well, what did Peter just confess Jesus to be? Son of God. There's a little contrast here. Son of Jonah, son of God. And not exactly equivalents, are they? Not exactly equivalents. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by, by my Father in heaven. Now, I want you to imagine that I've got a rock in my hand. This is also a C.S. Lewis illustration. I just like C.S. Lewis. So, imagine I've got a rock in my hand. If I want to discover what this rock is all about, I have to take all of the initiative. The rock's going to just sit there. The rock's not going to come to me. 
I've got to go to it. If I creep up on my hands and knees and be real quiet, like I'm out hunting, and I creep up on that rock, it isn't going to be surprised and it's not going to run away. (laughs) Yeah, if it does, the earth is quaking. So I have to take all the initiative and then use all of my senses to try to discover what this rock is about. Sight, hearing, smell, taste, crack it open, look at it, find out what kind of rock that is. Now, if it's a rabbit, I still have to take all the initiative, but I have to work a little harder because that rabbit is gonna run, as rabbits do, and unless it's a pet tame rabbit, so I, I may have to sneak up on it and snare it, uh, and then it's gonna struggle and kick and claw and use its hind legs to kind of make me uh, let it go, uh, and then it'll run away. So I have to take even more initiative. Now, if I wanted to know what made you tick, another human being, again, I'd have to take the initiative, but I'd also need your cooperation. I would need you to return the favor and let yourself be known. Open yourself up and talk to me. Tell me what makes you tick. Now, if I was a bad person, I could torture you, I suppose, but then I could never be sure that what I was getting from you was really the truth uh, because it wasn't voluntarily given. So I'd need your cooperation quite a bit. So we go from rock to rabbit to you. What if I wanted to, to know God? It wouldn't matter how much initiative I took unless God was completely willing to be known, that's all there is. It's me blindly searching for God. I would need God to make himself known. Peter is told by Jesus, blessed are you because God revealed this to you. That's what we mean by revelation. We mean by revelation that God takes the initiative to make himself known to us. One of the the church fathers, Anselm, said that when we seek God, the truth is really that God has already found us. When we seek God sincerely, honestly, the truth of the matter is that God has already found us, because in our seeking is God finding. In our seeking is God finding. So Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Flesh and blood cannot wrestle God out of heaven. God must himself reveal himself. Okay, next slide. Uh, Now we come to the heart of the matter. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, you and I, as as good uh, Protestants, uh, understand this text not to be about the founding of uh, the papacy in the West, about the the, uh, Bishop of Rome, and and Jesus building the church upon the office of the Bishop of Rome, the first one, legend has it, 
being Peter. We know it not to be, so let's look at the grammar here. I tell you that you were Peter, and on this rock, well, what rock would that be? Well, the rock might just be (laughs) what Peter later on said in one of his letters, that the foundation of the church is built upon the rock who is Jesus. So you can, and again, I'm reading into this a little bit, that uh, Jesus' body language. I tell you, you are Peter, and on, this is Jesus speaking, and on this rock, (laughs) got it? On this rock, I will build my church. On the rock of him himself. Or, as a lot of, uh, of scholars say, it's on the rock of Peter's confession. It's on the rock of Peter's confession, the confession you just made. You were the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that confession, the church is built. Now, this is one of the first places in the scripture that the word church is used. And the Greek for that is ekklesia. And it wasn't originally a religious word. Now, if you say church, people immediately think religion. Okay, that's fine, but that wasn't what Ecclesia meant, Ecclesia meant in the original. It simply meant a called out gathering of people. There were all kinds of Ecclesias. Anybody here ever in scouting? Raise your hand if you were. Okay, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts. When you were gathered for a special purpose as a scout troop, the word ecclesia would fit that. Uh, If you're in the Lions Club, Rotary Club, uh, any of those service organizations, it's an ecclesia, a gathering set apart for a special purpose. You have your mission statements, you have your membership fees, you have your roster of members, that's an ecclesia. So Jesus says this ecclesia, this gathering for a special purpose is built on this rock, this confession of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now Hades was an ancient god reputed to be the god of the dead, the god of the underworld, the god where the dead were. In the ancient world, you buried somebody, you put them in the ground, and they dwelt in Hades until the judgment day. And uh, Hades was the, the god of the underworld. And I want you to notice here that the gates of hell will not prevail against this confession of faith. The gates of a city were always its both most important point and its uh, weakest point. You know, any walled city in the ancient world uh, had gates for people to enter and close, and those gates needed to have extra special reinforcement because if you were ever attacked, that's where you'd likely be attacked because people want to get into the city. And so there'd be two towers on either side of the city and there'd be extra protection. Uh, The gates would be, they would try to reinforce them as much as possible so that the enemy couldn't breach the gate. 
Well, Jesus says here, those gates are nothing. These gates to the world of the dead will not prevail against this church built on this rock with this confession. We'll get to why not in just a moment. Next slide, please. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this binding and loosing was kind of a Hebrewism. It's, uh, it, was, it really means what's permitted and what's not permitted. And Jesus, as the rabbi to these disciples, tells them what's permitted and what's not permitted. And he was often in conflict with the other rabbis of the day, Pharisees and Sadducees and so forth. Take, for example, his letting the disciples on the Sabbath pick grains of wheat and eat them. He was loosing them to do that, releasing them to do that, giving permission for them to do that. Now, this whole business of negotiating Jewish law is a complicated business, and I'm glad that we don't live under that burden. I really am glad we don't live under that burden. I read that, uh, here's, a, here's a thing that the rabbis had to conference over and decide. If you have a dog, and that dog dies in your home, your home is unclean until you have a ceremony to cleanse it. Your home is considered unclean because your dog died in your home. If your dog dies out in the yard, your home is okay, it's clean. If your dog is laying on the front step, <laughs> on the welcome mat, and it dies, uh, the question comes up, is your house clean or unclean? Now you and I were just gonna go, whatever. But in, in, uh, in Israel of that day, and probably with some sects today in Israel, that has to be negotiated with the rabbi. Is your house clean or unclean? <laughs> and here's the answer, one of the answers given. If, if your dog's nose is pointed towards the door, unclean. If your dog's nose is pointed somewhere else, clean. <laughs> okay, aren't you glad you don't have to live under the burden of trying to figure out what's clean and unclean and, and according to the law and not? Well, Jesus says, I'm going to be that rabbi to you and teach you what is loosed and what is bound. And among the important things there is that you remember when Peter first preached the gospel to the Gentiles, it was after a vision that he had of all these unclean animals. And Jesus, he, Jesus says, partake and eat. And he says, no, I, I can't do that. These are unclean animals. And Jesus says, what I've cleansed, let no one call uncleansed. And at that moment, there was a knock at his door and it was Gentiles asking for Peter to come and follow them because they knew he had something to share with them. And when he went and the house was full of Gentiles and by the law, he wasn't really even permitted to be in the home of a Gentile, but he preached the gospel to them and the Holy Spirit was given and they came to faith. Why? Because Jesus had loosed, had given Peter the authority to be loosed to do that. Does that all make sense? Okay. 
Jesus gives us permission and authority to go in his name into all kinds of situations where we might just say, well, I shouldn't do that, or I won't do that, or I can't do that. Next slide, please. Now, right after Jesus did this, he ordered his disciples not to tell anybody (laughs) that he was the Messiah. Now, scholars call that the messianic secret (laughs) because that's repeated in Mark and in Luke. Um, And John, the Gospel of John, kind of tells us why. It has Jesus saying, because my time has not yet come. (laughs) My time has not yet come. Keep it a secret for now. Just kind of keep it to yourself. There's a lot that has to happen between now and when you get the power to declare that. Next. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of of the elders and the chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day rise. The scripture says... Jesus began to tell them that he must. I want you to underline that word, put it in bold capital letters, that he must go to Jerusalem. This is divine necessity. It had to happen. It had to happen. Let's talk about why it was necessary. Because when Jesus comes, he comes both as savior and intruder. Savior and intruder. Let's talk about the intruder part of that for a moment. I want to give you something impossible. It is impossible to believe in God while you're trying to be God. (laughs) While you're trying to be God, it's impossible to trust in the Lord your God. What is our problem? Our problem is we want to be God. We want to be God's. We we want to be the final authority in our own lives. We want to be at the center of our little bit of the universe. It is our particular problem. (laughs) And we all share it. So when Jesus comes, when God comes, when God shows up and looks you right in the face, it's going to be at least in part as an intruder. And for some people, it's going to be a major intruder. An intruder so much intruding that they want to get rid of him, that they want to whip him, spit on him, curse him, and crucify him. And then put him in a grave and slide a stone in front of the grave and say, there, Now we don't need to worry about who's God around here. (laughs) So this business of Jesus coming as an intruder is how it is. Martin Luther used to say, you know, the theology of the cross is really about explaining things or describing things the way they are, not the way we wish they would be or the way that sometimes in our romantic fantasies we think they might be, but the way they are. All you have to do is look around the world at all the 
people uh, jockeying to be gods. There isn't a war in the world going on now from time immemorial in the past that hasn't been because of people trying to be gods. Crime in our neighborhoods and cities, people trying to be gods. You know, people messing up their marriages, people trying to be gods. All kinds of things, just all attributed back to that same human nature which Martin Luther described as being turned in on ourselves. And so that we see the Lord as God, as an intruder. But he also comes as Savior. I want to tell you a story I told Angie before the service because it, it, to me, every once in a while I hear a story that so embodies the gospel, I just, I just am moved by it all over again. This I saw, uh, I listened to another pastor preach this, and I, I, it wasn't my story, but he, he was saying that so often the church misses the point and becomes the problem. And so he told this story. He told a story about a woman that he had been ministering to who was trying to leave prostitution. And she had received Christ and was struggling with that, but mostly she was struggling, struggling with shame. Not only her own sin and guilt, but her a very physical, tangible sense of shame. And he thought to help her, he would invite her to a concert of a friend. A friend of his was playing in a band like this one, and they were playing praise music, and, and he wanted her to come and listen. Now, he knew that there was going to be a speaker, too, so he was hoping that that would speak to her. Well, the pastor that spoke couldn't have missed the point more. <laughs> and... and uh, I underline that because I, when I heard what this pastor said, I too was just kind of, oh my gosh, he didn't say that, did he? I, well, the pastor had he said, we're going to talk about God's plan for sex. So you'd think that maybe here there'd be something for this woman, that, but we're going to talk about God's plan for sex. And now this pastor's going, oh, I hope this is going to turn out okay. He had a rose in his hand this pastor, and he began to kind of play with the rose and sniff it and look at how beautiful it is. That is God's original intention for sex. And then he passed it around the crowd. And then at the end, he says, I want you to bring it back up. And he kept talking about God's plan for sex. Eventually, the flower made its way back up to him, but now it had been manhandled pretty severely. And it was drooping, and there were petals missing, and it was kind of crumpled up, and it wasn't the beautiful rose that he had originally sent out. And the pastor said this. He said, who would want this rose? Now, mind you, this woman's already struggling with shame. And this would just multiply it a hundred times, a thousand times. And this pastor who had brought her was stunned and sitting there going, don't you get it? Jesus wants this rose. Jesus wants this rose. Who would want this wilted, faded, crumpled up, beaten up flower? Jesus does. That's the whole point. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All of us are that beaten up, mutilated, drooping rose. And Jesus wants you. (laughs) And Jesus wants you. He comes as intruder and he must because that's how we're built. We we are built so that we would regard him as an intruder. That's how we are. But he comes as savior. And those beaten up people who are weary and heavy laden (laughs) uh, or on the cross next to him saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a beaten up rose for sure. And Jesus says, yeah, (laughs) truly today you'll be with me in paradise. Talk about the gates of hell being beaten down. The gates of Hades cannot prevail against the love of God and the power of God. We talked about in that song, it says how beautiful is his name, how wonderful is his name, how powerful is his name, and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against that beauty, wonder, and power. Next. And Peter took him. Oh, back up one more. There's one more thing here. That which is, and he must, and he be killed and raised on the third day. Now, there's one funny, I think it's just funny scene in, in, I think it's the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration with the disciples and coming down from the mountain, uh, he says the same thing to his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and on the third day raised. And then the next verse is, the disciples didn't understand what he was saying and wondered what being raised from the dead meant. (laughs) It would be a puzzler, wouldn't it? Kind of good. Well, I got the crucified part because we've seen that, you know, we've seen that happen. And, and death, well, death is all around us. But what's this being raised from the dead business? Well, that's probably the true here too. The disciples just, it just kind of went right over their heads. Next, Peter took him and began to rebuke him and said, never, Lord. Well, if it's never going to happen, then there's never going to be any salvation and there's never going to be any hope. Unless Jesus is crucified, there's never going to be a resurrection. There's never going to be an Easter if there isn't a Good Friday first. No throne without the thorns. No crown without the cross. And so when Peter says, never, Lord, Jesus regards that as a satanic attack. This is completely 180 degrees antithetical to the truth and the necessity of Jesus' death. When Peter says, this shall never happen to you, Jesus might just as well have said, well, then you're never going to be saved. How about that? Next Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block, a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So this was an indictment of Peter's own sinful nature. This was Jesus, wanting Jesus to be Savior without him being Lord, crucified and risen Lord, can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. 
It would be like me uh, coming to the door of your home and, and knocking and, and you open the door and you say, welcome, Rich can come in, but Jesperson has to stay out. I mean, it's nonsense, right? If you get me, you get the whole of me, Rich and Jesperson, like it or not. Uh, if Jesus comes into your life, you get Jesus as Savior, <laughs> but you also get him as Lord and things are never going to be the same again. Moving along, Jesus makes that very point by saying, uh, next. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Martin Luther said, every Christian is a crucian, meaning a cross-bearer. C-R-U-C-I-A-N, crucian. Every Christian is a crucian, a cross-bearer. And we don't just engage in some little self-denials like I'm not going to... There's a woman in my congregation who likes to deprive herself of chocolate during Lent. Well, that's good. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but that's not exactly what this means. To deny yourself means to deny yourself at the center of your life. It's to say, no, I'm not God. I am not God. I have a God, but I'm not God. Now, for those of you who've parented small children, you know, you will have, you'll understand what I'm about to say, which is that one of the first tasks of every parent is to teach their children that they are not God. <laughs> They are not the center of the universe. The world doesn't revolve around them. And even now, I have this voice, I of course believe it to be the Holy Spirit speaking in my ear, saying, Rich, it's not about you. Rich, it's not about you. You'd be surprised how often every day I hear that. Rich, it's not about you. <laughs> well, that's what it means to be his disciple, to deny yourself as God, take up your cross, which means your identification with Jesus as Lord and Savior, and follow him. Next. And then whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and will find it. Again, C.S. Lewis says there's nothing that we can hold on to in life which will have any eternal value. Nothing that we can hold on to in life that will have eternal value, but only things that we let go of to Christ will we keep for eternity, will be transformed by him and made part of the new creation. But only what we let go of to him will have eternal value. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is to receive Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Now, at the end of sermons, I used to, as a little kid, think the word amen meant the end. <laughs> it 
you know, pastor would be talking and all of a sudden he'd say amen and I'd go, ah, it's finally over. It's the end. But, you know, as you know, it's a Hebrew word meaning what? So be it. Boom. Stake my claim. Put the flag in the ground. This is what I stand on. So be it. So I want to hear a good rousing amen from y'all, okay? By the way, do you know the plural for y'all? All (laughs) y'all. It's weird, but it's the South. So I'd like to hear a good rousing amen from all y'all.